and family. We are your friendly neighborhood DC-based tour guides here with you to talk all about Scandal and uh, DC and uh, history and all fun things and exciting things. We are back. It is now June and we are excited about the June. Uh, it is warming and we are thinking about summer. Our thoughts in June turn to summertime, summer tours, uh, and summer pod topics. But before I get into any of that, let me just first introduce ourselves. Uh, as always, I am Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are the Rebecca's. So we are back, friends. It is June. We're thinking about our summer tours. So if your summer plans are coming, taking you to the DC area, we would love to have you on a tour. We would uh, love to bring you and show you around the summertime heat in Washington. We have so many great tour options you can find on our website, uh, dcbyfoot.com. We would love to bring you around with us. Um, we also are thinking about our summer pod topics. So we are going to, here's a little scheduling update. We will have episodes for you in June and July as as normal. And then we're going to take an August recess like the rest of the world, i.e. all of Washington. Uh, and we'll be back with you in September. So we are thinking about our summer topics. We're thinking about our fall topics. We want to know what topics you want to hear about. Uh, we've had some really great and interesting patron requests that we've done this past spring, which have been really fascinating stuff that I would not have necessarily thought to talk about myself. And it's been really great to delve into things that people want to hear. So we want to do we want to give the people what they want. So if you have something that you're a burning desire, something we've mentioned, something we've never mentioned, let us know. And we are happy to try to work it into the, the schedule and uh, make you all very happy. Uh, we also want to give a thank you to our patrons who are as ever the wind beneath our wings our patrons make the world go round on this pod and you're getting uh, a special patron episode every month uh, there's been a couple of months this spring where you may have gotten two special patron episodes so this is a good time to become a patron if you're not already uh, we are uh, very much grateful for our patrons they have kept the lights on for the two plus years of this pod and continue to be Amazing. So patrons, thank you for being amazing. And for those of you who are thinking about becoming patrons, you also could become amazing. That would be really great. Uh, <laughs> and that's it. I think that's all. It's all preliminary stuff, Becca. Yeah, I think that is definitely a, a good place to start. Um, as always, though, just reach out to us. We want to hear from our listeners. Um, and thank you to everyone who sent us uh, pod topics. And, you know, after August, it's the start of a new season for us, essentially a new year of the pod, new calendar year. So any new ideas you have, we love them. We thought that it might be a little fun. It's summer. Um, you know, June is like traditionally the month of weddings. It is the most popular month to get married in America. Still today, despite June being hot, I don't, I don't know. I find it weird no, that that's the month that the most people, but you know, they say when you marry in June, you're a bride your whole life, right? June brides are like allegedly the happiest of all brides. So we thought we'd talk about a very famous wedding that took place in June. Uh, and that is the wedding of an American president. So to give a little context here, weddings taking place in the White House are a really big deal because truly, historically, there have not been very many. Um, most presidents are already married by the time they run for president um, or yeah. they're widowed and don't remarry. Or in the case of James Buchanan, they're a lifelong bachelor. But for the most part, 
you're probably already married. Um, and then if presidents do marry during their time as president, it doesn't always happen in the White House. So per the White House Historical Association, there have been 18 documented weddings in the White House. These are almost exclusively for children of a president of the United States. So a nice perk if you're a first child is you can have your wedding at the White House, which is a pretty nice venue to get married at. Now, Wait, and you have to deal with secret service, yeah. but you also get to get married in the White House. So it's a trade-off, you know? Yeah, you know, pretty historic house. Um, you have the White House catering. That's pretty good. Um, but yeah, secret service, press scrutiny, there are definitely some downsides. So 18 documented weddings over 220 years is really not a lot. And then there have been four wedding receptions at the White House where people have gotten married elsewhere and then had their reception at the White House. Um, there's been only one president to actually have a wedding ceremony in the White House, and that is Grover Cleveland. As a little caveat here, um, John Tyler marries Julia, who we talked about briefly in a previous episode, in 1844 while he was president of the United States. But they got married in New York City, and then they just had a tiny little reception at the White House when they returned. Um, and then, of course, there's Woodrow Wilson, who we've also touched on in this podcast, who uh, gets married. He is widowed during his presidency. He remarries, but he marries his second wife, Edith, at her D.C. home. And so, again, not a presidential wedding at a White House. So Grover Cleveland is the only one to be president and get married at the White House. And you can imagine it's a pretty darn big deal. It's a big deal. And I also like most of the time boy meets girl and boy marries girl and then boy becomes president. Someday it will be girl becomes president, but we haven't gotten to that yet in our history. But for the most part, presidents have come into the White House and they're already married. Like they've been married a long time. They have an established rhythm. It's, you know, marriage takes work and all that. It is almost amazing to me to talk about someone who marries the president. Like exactly. you actually step into that role. Like it must be anxiety producing enough when the person you're married to becomes president, but actually marrying the president, that's got to be like a whole different set of crazy town. So anyway, the Cleveland wedding's a big deal. It's in the White House. As we get into Cleveland and some of the nitty gritty of what happens with his bear or what happens leading up to the marriage, you can imagine perhaps why he makes some of the choices he makes because it's an incredible amount of scrutiny dating the president courting the president. Um, this puts you under a huge spotlight. Uh, and then to marry a man who's already the most powerful man in the world is a lot. So um, it does, I think, explain some of why this goes down the way it goes down. I would also imagine like as president, you can't like date like a normal person. Like you don't just show up at somebody's house and like do the drop in and hang out for a night. Like there's no Netflix chill when you like have to be surrounded by secret service you know <laughs> that's i mean not that that was an issue like the secret service wasn't protecting the president when Glover cleveland was president but still like leader of the free world isn't somebody who just like casually goes on like group dates you know um so this is it's a whole thing and that's i think part of why this all goes down the way that it does as becca said but um i have opinions about all of this <laughs> if you want to know what it's like to date a president you should watch the american president <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is sort of the best really should. sort of exploration of what it might be like to date a president. That's when Sorkin <laughs> was good. Back at back when we had good Sorkin. Yes. That's the that's the one I would recommend. 
So Grover Cleveland, 100%. as just a little overview about Cleveland, um, he's a lawyer uh, who will become a politician. He's from New Jersey. His path to the White House is, I think, very similar to that which we sort of talked about previously for sort of presidents in the 19th century. He's involved in party politics fairly early on. He's well-connected. He kind of works his way up a number of appointed positions and then elected offices. Um, his career is really going to bloom when he goes to New York. He is part of the Tammany Hall sort of machine. Um, so very much part of uh, partisan party politics, um, where these are like guys in back rooms smoking cigars and being like, Cleveland's going to be our governor, Cleveland's going to be president of the United States. That's sort of the political era we're in. He's going to go basically from mayor of Buffalo, New York, to governor of New York. Uh, he'll be a very popular uh, governor of New York in the time that he serves. And uh, around this time, when he's kind of moving up in the world of New York politics, he is going to court a widow named Maria Halpin. This is not a relationship that goes very well. Um, the two of them are known to see each other. They're known to court. She will later accuse him of assault and rape. Uh, she will claim that he gets her pregnant against her will. Um, he is, of course, going to accuse her of alcoholism and infidelity, basically to say there's no way that this child could have been theirs. He will force her into an institution in an attempt to discredit her. It's important to note that in this era, to institutionalize a woman was very, very easy. You needed very little evidence or reason. And if you were a man, locking a woman away was not a hard thing to do. So this is all really kind of messy and it's not gentlemanly and it's not in the sort of uh, image that Cleveland's presenting of himself as this really in you know, uh, he's an honest politician. He's against corruption. Um, so this all gets really swept under the rug thanks to the massive amount of party support that Cleveland has. So this happens um, during his governorship, um, but it doesn't really get a ton of attention. People know about it. There's talk, but it's not a big issue until he runs for president of the United States in 1884. And when he runs for president of the United States, you've got the national media kind of like, scrutinizing your past. And so this is going to become a much bigger deal than it was previously. And during his presidential campaign, all of this sort of comes back out. And the real thing that people are going to latch on to is that Cleveland has an illegitimate child with Maria. This is what really concerns people. And it gets to a point where um, Cleveland's running against a man named James Blaine, who we'll have to talk about in a future episode because he's fascinating. Um, yeah. Blaine supporters will show up at Cleveland campaign rallies and they will chant, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? To sort of needle Cleveland for being this irresponsible man who's fathered this child. What I think is sort of interesting is Cleveland, it, you know, this is messy. It's not um, something that Cleveland wants to deal with, but he tells his supporters, he tells his backers, he even tells the press that's on his side, Look, we have to tell the truth about this. He doesn't, during the national campaign, feel the need to lie um, or to lie extensively. He says, yeah, I acknowledge this child. I have provided financial support for it over its lifetime. So rather than say this child doesn't exist, he says, yes, I have legally acknowledged it and I have paid for its financial support. However, it's still really, really ugly it's very ugly. He is going to basically say that Maria was um, a, a loose woman, as it were, that she was involved with several men at the time and that the paternity of the child was truly in question. Now, I, I, I think this it... is probably 
I think it's, I do think it's a smear campaign, but I should note oh, yeah. that if you wanted to be a slightly more charitable to Cleveland at this time, that he was a bachelor, which would have meant that it would have given him some leeway to take responsibility for an illegitimate, an illegitimate child in a way that men who were married would not have been able to. So if there was a chance that there was a crony of his that was involved in married, <laughs> he would have been the one who could have. I feel so, I have emotions about this. So I, I don't know. I mean, we can talk about the Maria Halpin of it all at a later point. Like that's a whole thing. She is going to accuse him of rape. And he says, no, it was consensual. I totally fathered this kid. Although maybe kind of, I didn't because she's a loose woman, but then he names the child himself. He portray, he pays money for, to her to have her raise this child. Like he pays uh, paternity, but doesn't like you're, he leaves the child in the care of this woman who he then smears in the press as unfit. So it's all trash. And I would also like to mention the name that he gives his child, because this is going to come up real fast again. The name he names the child Oscar Folsom Cleveland, which trust me, the Oscar Folsom part is going to come around really quickly um, again. So it's just ugly. And I, I can... I mean, we're in the present day. The idea that a president, even a bachelor president, fathers a child out of wedlock is like would be a huge scandal. And the idea that there's a rape accusation would be a huge scandal. And I feel like it says so much about the mores of the time that like not only is it not a particularly huge deal, it obviously doesn't derail him from becoming president of the United States. She is basically vilified even though she's stuck with the responsibility of raising this child, like he provides financially, but is not like physically involved in raising this child that he acknowledges. And then also then calls out the mother and saying, well, maybe it's not my kid after all. Like it's all terribly messy and bad. It's all very messy and ugly. It's also very hard to get to the truth of the matter with it because both both Maria and, uh, um, I almost said Oscar Folsom, uh, Grover Cleveland and Maria both tell different versions of this over time. And as much as we like to sort of point to the press and kind of those primary sources, the press is all over the place on this, really depending on how sympathetic it is to Cleveland and how sensational it wants to make the story seem. So it's a little difficult to get down to sort of the truth of the matter. And here's kind of what's interesting to me there's a ton of ink spilled on this even in this era the press is like this is a good story it's juicy it's going to sell papers Mm -hmm. but it really doesn't sway voters against grover cleveland in any real way he's going to win the presidency pretty pretty solidly in 84 and so it's not going to be enough for people to go i don't trust him or and seem like a good dude they vote for him and he becomes president in march of 1885 so he's a bachelor president at this point we have only ever had one other bachelor enter the white house not a widow or anything like that but a bachelor that's james buchanan and so he's kind of got that that vibe about him he's a happy bachelor he's you know people like him cleveland's well liked um and it's sort of like okay is he going to marry this is sort of the question is he he's of a marrying age um does he have his eye on anybody and there's a lot of speculation in the dc press early uh in march of 85 if there's someone that he's looking for so the press is trying to find out is he dating secretly? And he does have marriage on his mind and he knows exactly who he wants to marry. And Rebecca, do you know who it is he wants to marry? 
I, in fact, do. So before he was in politics, he was a lawyer and he had a uh, law partner. He had a firm and his law partner, here's the name again, was named Oscar Folsom. <gasps> Wait, what, 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 what? Okay. So him and Oscar, Robert Cleveland and Oscar Folsom are law partners and pals. Besties. And they've known each yeah, they're besties. They've known each other many, many years. And Oscar Folsom is a happily married man. And so there actually is, just to go loop back to Maria Halpin, the Maria Halpin of it all, there is speculation that the um, son that Grover Cleveland claims is his was actually Oscar Folsom's son. And that Grover Cleveland just takes credit for it because his pal is married. But anyway, Oscar Folsom is married. He has a couple of daughters, but one of them is named Frances, and she is um, 27 years younger than Grover Cleveland, and he literally knows her since she was an infant. In fact, he is going to, when she's born, buy a baby carriage uh, for her parents as like a baby gift. <sighs> yes, this is going where do you think it's going, guys. Um, when her father dies, so his law partner dies when Frances is 11. Uh, and Grover Cleveland, as the law partner, is the administrator of um, his estate and kind of oversees Frances's education and her inheritance and that of her mother and her siblings. And so he's very much like the executor of her father's estate. And they have known each other forever. He, he's kind of like a godfather to her. Um, and there is this story that I read that is almost certainly apocryphal that when she's eight, she's kind of sitting on her godfather's lap and tells him that someday she's going to get married in the White House. And the reason she will is because she's going to marry him, uh, her godfather, who's 27 years older than she is, Grover Cleveland. So I think that story smacks to me of being really apocryphal and kind of gross, but um, she grows up into a very smart and very lovely young woman. And when he becomes, when Grover Cleveland becomes president, he starts writing her romantic letters like basically her and her mother visit him when he's governor of new york in albany and they at some point therein, the feelings between the two of them kind of turn romantic he writes her letters he does ask permission from her mother to write her uh in this way so he sort of goes about it and says you know this is this is no longer me as a father figure i am now interested in presenting myself as a suitor, which is sort of a weird shift to take. Oh, so wrong. Um, and I think it's politically savvy that he does wait until he's installed in the White House to really start a courtship so that it's sort of like he's got four years in the White House yeah. where he can kind of now do what he'd like to do yeah. without as much scrutiny as when you're campaigning. And he said, he once said that he knew who his wife was, was waiting for her to grow up which is gross, my friends, that's gross. There's a word for that and it starts with G and it rhymes with rooming. That's all I'm gonna say. Okay, I'm done now. <laughs> it's, it's, it is, it's a sticky wicket right here yes. because I mean, I think the fact too that he is so much of a father figure, he essentially oversees, right, the sort of back half of her childhood uh, after her father's death, it does create a very unusual situation. Even for this era, it is unusual. Um, yes. And then once he's president, it, you know, there's an allure to that. There's, And he leans into that. He leans into 
sort of the trappings of it and that he now can give her anything she wants. And by sort of allowing her to at least get an education, it's sort of, he's playing the long game on this. Um, And so, yeah, he's like sending her flowers, he's sending her letters and he proposes by letter, correspondence, um, but they keep the engagement a secret until five days before their wedding. I think there are two reasons for this, (laughs) that they keep it a secret. (laughs) I think one of them is to protect her. Yes. I do. Um, You know, knowing that the press would stalk her, knowing that, you know, they would disrupt her at whatever she's doing, her school, her home, like they would camp out and, you know, very much sort of like, we're kind of used to the paparazzi now this, that would have been what happens to this young woman who's trying to get an education and do her thing. And I feel like part of the reason that he's doing that is to protect her, which is a noble reason. Yes. And I believe a hundred percent. The other is to protect his own political. Yeah, I definitely think it is to, to protect her. Um, he knows the minute that people know that they're engaged, that's it for her. She becomes a public figure and he puts it off really, truly as long as he can. And this is why she doesn't really spend a lot of time at the White House prior to their wedding. She and her mother attend a couple of White House events, um, two to the best of my knowledge. Um, but other than that, they're pretty much all doing this by mail. Um, and then she's off sort of traveling with her mother, making wedding preparations. And then she shows up at the White House five days before she's going to get married. That's kind of the way that it's going. Um, Also, the age gap, to be clear, at this time, she is 21 on the day of the wedding. He is 49. So let's just pull this apart for a second, too. She's 21 when she gets married, which is young to be married, but in this era, perhaps about the average age of the woman would get married. But 21, and you're about to become the first lady. Um, Frances Cleveland is, to this day, our youngest first lady. Um, She's stepping right into this role at a very young age. I can only imagine. And it is very, I mean, I don't want to go out on a limb here, but I'm pretty certain she will be forever our youngest first lady. I can't imagine someone anyway. Um, but yeah, she like stepping into this role, like, first of all, they haven't spent a ton of time together because he's been so cautious about like not wanting to make her a public figure. So during this engagement, they haven't seen a whole lot of each other and they obviously can't live together before marriage. Cause that, even if he wasn't president, that wasn't a thing that was done back then. So she's just jumping heart like full bore into a marriage into the white house into being in the national spotlight all at like 21 years old and like a recent college graduate i there's no way i feel like to prepare adequately for like all of those things at once it's really like the it amazes me that she like maintains her sanity like it just is so much to take on exactly So the wedding itself will take place June 2nd, 1886, so 136 years ago. It will take place in the Blue Room of the White House. There were only 28 guests, so this is small. It's essentially their immediate family uh, and then the cabinet plus their wives. So this is not a big event. They're keeping it very intimate. Again, I think some of this is to protect uh, Frances, to shield her as much as possible and ease her in. I also think even Grover Cleveland recognizes the age difference is vast and the less people there are the less people to talk and judge publicly. Um, No press was allowed, which you can imagine throws reporters into insanity. There are op-eds written just about how dare he get married and not invite the press. (laughs) It also though builds up. There's just all of a sudden, imagine you're a reporter, Washington, DC. 
you get a, a news alert or you get, you know, your little press notification that in five days, the president's getting married. All you know about her is her name and a little bit of her background. And now you're realizing you're not even going to get to go to the wedding and cover it. The interest, the interest in Francis is just building and building and building, right? It's like she is this elusive, yes. secretive figure. And so it's no surprise to me that she's going to become such an obsession with the media because there's like all this secretive stuff leading up to it. Now on the actual wedding day, Grover Cleveland works a full presidential day. So he like gets up, he does correspondence. He meets with his cabinet. He's going to take meetings. They like literally don't get married until the late afternoon because he's going to work, which I kind of respect. So he doesn't even take a holiday. He just does a typical working day. And then they go to the blue room and they get married. Now, her dress, which would later um, be described at length in the press, is made of a stiff satin with orange blossom and laurel trimmings uh, sort of sewn into it. She would later alter this wedding dress into a more typical evening gown. And this is what she frequently would rewear for portrait sittings, for formal White House events. So she like reuses and repurposes her wedding dress and uses it quite often. The orange blossoms are based on what Queen Victoria had uh, sewn into her dress. She had like an orange blossom motif. And so Victoria uh, influences a lot of wedding traditions actually in the United States, including like the wearing of white and a lot of other things that we do. And so um, that is where Frances Cleveland gets the orange blossoms. She does not, there are no um, photographs taken of the wedding itself. There's sketches that are done for the press, but they do take posed photographs later. And she will take pictures of herself to distribute to her friends and family, most of which do not attend outside of her mother and a couple siblings. So most of her extended family doesn't even get to come. So she has um, photographs made to send to her, uh, send to her family. The dress includes a tulle veil that was 18 feet long, which is a lot of veil if you're not going to like walk down an aisle in a cathedral or something. Yeah, that's a big thing. And it is believed, we we cannot say for sure, but it is believed that the gown was designed in Paris. We know that Frances and her mother traveled to Europe for a couple of months before the wedding. This is basically for her to build up a trousseau, for her to, she's going to be first lady. She's going to be a public figure. She needs gowns. Gorgeous gowns, fabulous gowns. She needs gowns. Uh, she needs adult clothes. She's not a not a student. She's not a college student anymore. She needs grown-up woman clothes. And so we know that she comes back with a lot of stuff. And we assume this is most likely where she gets her wedding dress in uh, Paris from an atelier there. Nice. She is also going to insist that their wedding vows, vows be rewritten. And I love this so much. Uh, instead of love, honor, and obey, both her and Grover Cleveland pledge to love, honor, and keep, which is so great. Um, and I stand. Um, she, the music is provided for by the United States Marine Corps Band, conducted by John Philip Sousa, because apparently when you're actually the president, you can get all the stuff and they bring like the Marine Corps band into the White House. That sounds like a pretty good wedding reception. And they take apparent, you're not allowed a ton of vacation time as president generally. Uh, and though, so they're only going to take a six day honeymoon to exotic Deer Park, Maryland. 
I was so excited. I was like, I wonder where the Cleveland's honeymooned. And I thought maybe they would have gone to, I don't know, like Niagara Falls because he's got the New York connection or that they would have gone out into the Shenandoah. No, they go to Deer Park, Maryland, which is fine. Um, It's Mm -hmm. where the water comes from, uh, the bottled water. Yeah, Um, right. (laughs) But at the time, it's sort of, it is compared to DC. It's more rustic. It's lovely. It's summer. So you want to get out of the heat. So they're going up into the the forest a little bit. Um, However, it's not really fun for them because the press, which has still not been allowed to really meet or talk or see Francis Folsom Cleveland, they are stalking them the entire time. There are stories of reporters hiding in restaurant kitchens to try to just even find out what dishes they are eating on their honeymoon. And it gets so bad that Grover Cleveland, as president, sends a letter to the New York Post basically saying, you guys ruined my honeymoon. (laughs) You guys are jerks. And just that you, they ruined this, what should have been a nice time for this couple. <laughs> and I do, really, you know, I do feel a little sympathy for them in this regard. Yes, I, I feel a little sympathy for them. And to be honest, like, I feel like there's no right way to introduce her. You know, he wants to protect her, which, and keep her sort of away from the press as long as possible, but also like the press is going to do what they're going to do. And so I feel like the a better way to do this would be after the wedding, like have a some sort of reception and allow the press some access to her and then plead for privacy as she adjusts in some way. I don't know. Um, but she's, there's no right way to do this. I think, um, she becomes exceptionally popular. She's very beautiful. And there'll be a, um, uh, we'll put a links in the show notes to this and Grover Cleveland's fine and all, but like, she's really lovely. Um, so it's not, and I guess they're mismatched in age, obviously, but she's just very pretty. She's adored by the press and, um, she becomes first lady kind of at this great moment when first lady is becoming a national figure. And so suddenly she is, she's known outside of DC. Um, this is going to change a little bit under, uh, Lucy Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes's wife. Um, but she becomes sort of this, uh, first lady, she's going to make the first lady into really a national uh, figure. Yeah, railroad travel is really changing. The, it's changing the country and it's changing politics. And now you've got a first lady who can get on a train and actually travel out beyond just D.C. and the immediate surrounding area. Um, you have more national press. You have um, news stories that are really traveling across the country much more quickly because of rail and other technology that's kind of being introduced in this time. So all of a sudden, people really know the first lady in a way and and the president in a way that they hadn't before. And the fact that she is very young and very beautiful does not hurt. People are really going to be obsessed with her. She is considered so lovely. A rival to Grover Cleveland once said this by way of trying to insult him. I detest Grover Cleveland so much that I don't even think his wife is beautiful. So that was sort of his way of being like, I hate him so much. I can pretend that Francis isn't pretty. Uh, One reporter once wrote about her that she had 5,000 smiles and never two alike. Um, You know, so that's the kind of flattering sort of stuff that was written about her. She was very stylish as well. She's young. She is dressing in a way very different from that immediate sort of post-Civil War era. And her wardrobe gets an obsessive documentation. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, from the White House Historical Association that really went through and looked at how much attention her wardrobe gets. Um, She is, because of her youth, the very first first lady 
to regularly wear what were called décolletage dresses, essentially low necklines to really show off cleavage. She's also the first first lady to regularly wear sleeveless gowns in public. So we're moving more into sort of the look of the gilded age, as it were. So we're seeing more ornate gowns. We're seeing the sleevelessness, the the lower cut. The Women's Christian Temperance Union would actually write a very critical letter and pamphlet about her wardrobe being too immodest and about her sort of setting a bad example for women of America by wearing these décolletage gowns. Everything that's old is new again. Like that seems like such a like, you know, you know, the young people, they're just crazy with their fashions and oh, she's showing too much skin. And apparently she's allegedly the reason that the bustle falls out of fashion because she does not regularly wear a bustle with much of her um, wardrobe. This is the bustles falling out in fashion in Europe, which is where she takes a lot of her fashion inspiration for the first um term of Grover Cleveland's presidency. Um, and so she, this is, I'm surely apocryphal, but she apparently tried to go to a department store and tried to buy a bustle to go with a gown. And she's told that she can't because she stopped wearing them. So the store stopped selling them. And so she can't even buy a bustle when she wants one because of her influence on fashion. And she is apparently the reason that women remove their hats at the theater. Because previously, you know, women are wearing these big old hats and it was considered rude to remove it. So imagine being at the theater or a concert and you're trying to watch what's on stage and this woman's got a big old hat in front of you. So Frances, the first time she goes to the theater in D.C. is going to remove her hats and then that becomes... It changes the way that women wear hats to the theaters. So she really becomes kind of this trendsetter. In Grover Cleveland's second term, she's going to really turn her attention to buying American, shopping American designers. She's going to start supporting designers that are employing uh, kind of workers in America. And she has a real interest in uh, protecting sort of women at work and advocating for safer working conditions for women. So that will be something that really influences her fashion and her clothes buying uh, later into her presidency, uh, later into Grover Cleveland's presidency. Uh, and as she gets a little bit older, um, she's not just a fashion plate though. She is um, really kind of interested in politics and policy. She's educated. She's smart. Um, she will add a weekly reception to her schedule every Saturday to accommodate working women so that um, traditionally prior to this, a lot of receptions were held on weekdays. And if you had a job, it was very hard for you to come and meet the first lady. She wants to make sure that she's talking to the women that are actually working. She's also a huge celebrity, you know, as you can kind of imagine with her youth, with her sort of vitality and her beauty. And she's a very much a fashion trendsetter. She's the top of the social heap in Washington, but she's a, her image is everywhere. She is a constant presence in magazines, newspapers, advertisements. At one point, she is uh, going to have to threaten a lawsuit. There is a pack of cigarette or a cigarette company that is going to use her image without her consent to sell their product. And she says, I don't, I didn't consent to this. I don't want to be seen as advocating for smoking. Uh, and so she's going to threaten a lawsuit to protect her image. So she is uh, sort of at the dawn of the idea of the first lady as celebrity, but she's also 
one of the first first ladies to really understand the power of her uh, image of her um, uh, that she has a right to her own image uh, and sort of protecting uh, that on a, in a legal way on the national stage. So she is very savvy and uh, very well uh, versed in sort of making sure she wants to curate her own image in the national press, which I think is really kind of forward thinking of her. And I think it's important to note that as a public figure, um, and this is still very true today, there's very little control over how your image is used. And um, there's there's a little bit, um, there's more, more sort of legal protection today in terms of endorsing um, particular products and things of that nature. But in this era, they're slapping her picture on everything and basically saying she says it's okay. And it's so frustrating for her. And she expresses frustration about this in letters. And I, I can't even imagine, you know, you've got your face on a tonic or a powder that someone's claiming can cure cancer or cure a, a, just a random illness. And you're like, well, if the first lady's pictures on it, it must be legit. Um, it really was. You sort of turned so much of yourself over when you agreed to that role, um, which is, again, I think kind of why they're so secretive about it. I love, too, she really continues her education as first lady. She was very eager to study French. She wanted to learn to speak French more fluently, um, but she's first lady, and she's got a lot of obligations, and it's hard to, like, find time to go take French lessons, so she would take French lessons in her carriage. Um, she would have her French tutor sit in a carriage with her, and when she was going to and from places, she would study French, and that's how she learned and improved her French during her time. I think that's just like a fascinating little antidote because she knows if she's at the White House, she's going to be called away. She knows if she tries yeah. to go somewhere, keeping that appointment regularly is going to be difficult. And so it's just mm -hmm. like during her travel time, she is studying French. She's also becomes a mother and they actually wait a few years before having children. So she, they get married in June of 1886. He is in the second year of his uh, administration. They don't have their first child until he's out of the White House. Their first daughter, Ruth, is born in 1891. Um, Grover Cleveland is, as we've mentioned many times, the only non-consecutive two-term president in American history. So he's president, he loses re-election, and then he runs again and is elected a second time. So in the middle is Benjamin Harrison. So she has their first child, Ruth, uh, who is nicknamed Baby Ruth. And that's actually where the candy comes from, uh, is her and not the baseball player. Uh, and then he's her husband is reelected president for his second term as she has two children while she is first lady, uh, Esther and Marion. Uh, then he it stops being president and they have two more, uh, Richard and Francis. So a total of five children, uh, which um, with uh, Grover Cleveland, they are very devoted to each other and very seem to be very happy. It's by all accounts, an extremely happy marriage. Yeah, it's one of those things where I do feel like it is so squidgy to talk about, especially in today. There's a lot of circumstances about their courtship and engagement that do give us that like weird feeling. But it, and it's hard to know what happens behind closed doors. But truly, by all accounts, and certainly by her documentation, it seems to have been very happy. I will say this too: I love when he loses um, re-election initially. They say goodbye to all the um, servants and workers at the White House, and Francis says take care of everything because we're going to be back in four years. And she's right. <laughs> Which I think like, was oh, she just so like much. trying to be nice and kind or did she really just know like, yeah, we're going to win again. <laughs> but I sort of love that. I love yes, the confidence. <laughs> 
so great. I think she knew. I think she knew they'd be back. I I have um, um, I faith in Francis. I think she knew. Uh, while they're uh, president and first lady for both of those terms, um, they do have a home uh, in Cleveland Park, uh, the Cleveland Park neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Um, that's their summer home, D.C., hot and humid in the summers, especially down along the White House, along the mall. Um, that area is just always sort of a, a stuffy in the uh, summers. And so like many other presidents, they sort of seek higher ground and cooler air. And so the home is no longer standing, but it would have been probably uh, like Newark Street is kind of the estimation on maybe Maycomb and Newark somewhere in there. Um, He calls Mm -hmm. it Oak View. No one else calls it that. Everyone else calls it Red Top (laughs) because it has a red roof. Um, But he insists it is Oak View, which becomes the name of one of the earlier developments there. Um, But they basically, at the time they lived there, it's like a little mansion in the woods. There's really nothing else there, but that is frequently where they will spend time um, sort of carriaging back and forth. And she really loves their time uh, at at Oakview officially. Um, But if you were curious to know if Cleveland Park had a connection to Grover Cleveland, it does. Um, That's sort of where it gets its name. It's where the Clevelands summered, uh, which is really, again, funny because it's all still DC. Yeah, it's still DC and still hot. And he died. So he is finished being president uh, in 1897. He is going to die at the age of 71 in 1908. Uh, she is going to wait five years uh, and then remarry. She's actually the first first lady to re former first lady to remarry at the age of 48 in 1913. She marries a man named Thomas Preston Jr., who is a professor of archaeology at her alma mater, Wells College. Uh, she is um uh yeah she's vacation a year or so later she's actually vacationing in switzerland when the first world war breaks out with two of her kids and she's like i should probably get out of here <laughs> uh and so they she comes back to um uh washington dc or to, to the states and she her second marriage apparently is um pretty happy she does though and this is a sad thing uh she does campaign against women's suffrage I did not, that was made me sad when I did the research into her. She is, um, she contends that women aren't yet intelligent enough to vote, which is terrible, particularly coming from someone who is herself very educated uh, and went to school and was really sort of involved in a lot of different causes. Um, But she, yeah, she's elected vice president of the New Jersey Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage, which kind of stinks. And I'm sad about that. Boo. Uh, She dies. Um, in, at the age of 83, she survives both world wars, dies in 1947, uh, and is buried next to her first husband in Princeton. There we go. I have been there. We went, uh, we went uh, and visited. Um, it's mm-hmm. the same. The Princeton uh, Cemetery also has uh, Aaron Burr and uh, a few other notable sort of figures from the revolutionary era, but then Grover Cleveland and Francis Folsom Cleveland are laid to rest there. So if you ever visit Princeton, um, the cemetery there is very close to campus. um, So it's just sort of right there. Um, There's also uh, a house uh, to which uh, Cleveland lived in 
during his time there. Um, sadly, their DC home is no longer standing. The non-White House DC home is no longer standing. But yeah, she yes. ultimately chooses to be buried with Grover Cleveland, which I think speaks to the fact that he's the father of her children. He's his, uh, her first husband uh, and that they had a strong bond. But I always just kind of think like by the time she's widowed, the first time, the time she's yeah. widowed, she is only in her 40s and yet she has been first lady for two terms she's had five children she's lived such a long life and then kind of in her 40s she Mm -hmm. then starts a second life and really lives a full rich second life it's really kind of fascinating yeah yeah she um her second husband outlives her oh that's right she is yes her second so they're um uh yeah they they have she has a second happily ever after as it happens so that's kind of cool as well um i think but yeah, he, it's, she lives a full life and then goes on to have a second full life. And 83, really incredible and interesting years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it does stand out um, historically. And I think this could very well continue to sort of be the only sort of presidential marriage in the White House. It could change, but it's so unusual. I mean, we don't even really have a ton for presidential children, let alone presidents themselves. So um, it is sort of historically significant in that regard. Um, And then the fact that like, I think White House wedding, and I'm like, I would have gone all out and they keep it so sort of small and intimate and uh, uh, Cleveland sort of uninterested in too much pomp and circumstance himself. So it's just sort of fascinating. And you also see so many presidential children that kind of go all out when they get married. Usually daughters are uh, going to be like sort of randomly. It's more daughters that kind of get have presidential weddings, but like they kind of go all out. But yet she's the only like woman to marry the president <clears throat> in the White House. And yet it's small and tasteful and lovely. And I'm just so I love it so much. <laughs> Agreed. So there we go. Um, just a little highlight of a wedding that took place 136 years ago. Um, that is that is our our, our Cleveland wedding episode. There's a lot more to dig in here. There's a lot that happens while Cleveland's in the White House, um, but that is for future episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Thanks, guys, for coming along with us. We got a little June happiness and some weddings and hope you're enjoying the June sunshine. And we will be back with you in another few weeks with another episode. Thanks for coming along. Bye, Bye, guys.